Grace means that all of your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving shame. Brene Brown. I'm Chris Harder, and you're listening to Miss J, The Renovation. Alexa, how can I be happier? Hmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, me either. Episode 8, Jesus Take the Wheel. I mean, is this about to turn into Fifty Shades of Prey? Hello and welcome back to another episode of Miss J The Renovation. Now for this episode, we are going to be tackling Christian self-help. This is a book that I found on Amazon. I actually found it kind of by accident. I was searching through the self-help titles and there was something kind of attractive and simple and elegant and Pinteresty about the cover. And the title was a little bit precious with its alliteration, but it kind of spoke to what I had wanted to get out of this project. So it's by Lisa Turkhurst and it's called Uninvited, Living Loved When You Feel Less Than, Left Out, and Lonely. And I guess I probably should have figured out that it was a Christian self-help book with the phrase living loved. There's something about that that in retrospect does sort of scream midweek Bible study. But like I said, there was something appealing about the cover and there wasn't anything really obviously preachy about it. There was no big crosses, nothing on the cover to really indicate what the sort of tradition of it was. So I threw it into my cart while I was looking around and I knew that I had wanted at least one Christian self-help book as part of the project. And as I started to look down at the reviews and some of the other information on the page, I realized that this was part of a Christian worldview. There were other Christian self-help books that were being recommended on the page. And so I decided that this would be it. As I'm sitting down to record this, I get the feeling there's going to be a lot to unpack with this episode, so let's just jump right in. Part 1. The first cut is the deepest. So as we're getting started in this episode, I wanted to kick things off with a story. I wanted to go back into my past and talk about one of my foundational experiences with organized religion. Like a lot of queer people, I have very troubled experiences with religion in general and Christianity in particular. And I knew that that was going to be part of this episode, but I don't think when I first conceived of this project that I really understood how close to the core of some of my issues with mental health and depression are related to that history. When I was first getting started on the project, before I even had all of the books picked out, I didn't have them put in order or any clever episode titles or anything. I sat down at the computer one day, I just felt like recording. I felt like getting some of my feelings out. And most of that audio ended up not being useful for the project. It went in a different direction of where the project went, or it just wasn't very interesting. It was just a chance for me to sit down and start to talk in front of a microphone. But this next clip that I'm going to play was part of that initial recording. This audio was recorded over a year ago, and it was recorded before I knew that Uninvited by Lisa Turkhurst would be the book that I was using for a Christian perspective. And when I listened to it back, knowing that this is one of the first things that I put 
put down in a recording starting this project, I know it's important and I know that it's part of this story. And I know that it is so fundamentally tied to a lot of the prickliness that I have around Christianity. And so I had to include this story and it's the story of Pastor Ken. People will sometimes ask me why I hate Christians or I hate Christianity. I don't hate Christianity. That's not the point. But I just, I feel like it has nothing to offer me. There's nothing about it that speaks to me or resonates with me of having any sort of truth. I do have a very spiritual side. For me to understand the world and to understand all of the complexity and all of the wonderful things and the terrible things, there has to be something bigger, something bigger than we small, sometimes terrible, awful, sometimes beautiful, sometimes surprising humans. I think there has to be something bigger, something larger, but I don't think that anybody who has tried to name it or describe it has it right. I think we all just try to grapple with it. I think we all just try to experience what there is of the divine or God or universe or whatever it is that you describe it as or name it as. In that journey, I just have realized that Christianity doesn't doesn't speak to me and it comes from it comes from a place of hurt it comes from a place of growing up and being very active in my church while also wrestling with queerness and also recognizing that some of those same people who thought that I was a wonderful good little Christian boy the minute they find out that I am not what they decided that I was or not what they feel like I should be they can completely discount what they know of me and of my character and just decide that I'm going to hell, whatever their version of hell is, because of my queerness or because of my beliefs. A lot of the hurt all goes back to Pastor Ken. So Pastor Ken was the pastor in our Methodist church. When I was fairly young, I was in school, um, but he was the pastor. He had a few kids somewhere. Most of them were older than I was. I think there was one or two that were younger. And he just was so dynamic and so charismatic. And he was also kind of a beautiful man. And I'm sure my budding queer self noticed that as well. There was something about him that just drew me to him. And I just listened and he would talk about Jesus in this loving, beautiful way and talk about the idea of grace and forgiveness and all of this beautiful stuff. And for somebody who was wrestling with who I was and wrestling with all of these hurts and heartbreaks and things, it just was such a hopeful message. I really decided that I wanted to be involved in my church. I really felt like that was a pathway for me because of Pastor Ken. And of course, by the time I got old enough to go into the youth group, Pastor Ken had moved moved on to a new church. We had a new pastor. He was great. He was kind of funny and, you know, whatever, but he just it didn't have the same sort of magnetism. But I just had been drawn in by all of the ideas that had been put in my head by Pastor Ken. Of course, during that time, I was also struggling with self-identity and struggling with this emerging queerness that I was feeling and not sure what to do and feeling like maybe this wouldn't be okay in my church. So when I was in college, I found this book by Andrew Tobias called The Best Little Boy in the World. And he talks about coming to terms with being gay and how he just tried to become the best at everything else. If he could sort of become the best little boy in the world, then none of this other 
stuff would matter. And that's really what I kind of tried to do as well. I really poured myself into being active with the youth group and with Vacation Bible School and helping out with the church. Um, you know, I knew all the little old ladies in church and would chat with them and talk with them after services and things. And I just believed that all of those stories that Pastor Ken had told me about grace, about forgiveness, that if I could just be this shining Christian example, that all of that would apply to me. And this sort of dark secret that I was holding inside wouldn't matter, wouldn't be the thing that came to define me. <sighs> so my freshman year of college is when I really kind of started to go through the actual coming out process. I'd been sort of mulling around this queerness for a while, but I really repressed it and really just thought, just get out of Bobell's, get out of your hometown, and then you can kind of deal with this. And when I got to Grand Forks, I found this community of people. I found the 10% Society. I met some of my first like out gay people, out and proud gay people, and it was such a revelation to me. And one of the people that I met, his name was Jamie, and he he lived in the town where Pastor Ken had gone after he left Bobel's. And when we discovered that connection, it was so strange to me. And I was like, that's amazing. I was like, he really kind of inspired me to be active in my church, like kind of having that faith. And I really had a hard time, you know, reconciling that with my feelings of queerness. And he said something along the lines of it was probably good that you know, he left your town before you kind of came to terms with it because I told him that I was gay and he told me that I would burn forever in hell. And that broke my heart. I mean, it was just so terrible to hear. And that's when I knew, that's when I knew that that pathway didn't have anything for me. It didn't have any truth for me. There was nothing there that I couldn't get other places. It's just stuff that people made up. It's just man-made junk. And so that really kind of broke me away from the church. And so now I'm very hesitant of anything that is based in Christianity, anything that openly references Christianity. And it's difficult because I've met wonderful, wonderful people who are Christian and who really uphold those values of love and forgiveness and really understand that queerness is not even something that needs to be forgiven. But they come from that place that also includes Pastor Ken. I guess I've always been afraid of having those conversations of how can you be a part of this thing when this also exists within that? How do you justify that? How do you reconcile that? I've just come to peace with it by saying that I wasn't going to be a part of it. I wasn't going to have anything to do with it. It wasn't for me. And, you know, I'm happy for people who find their happiness in that tradition. And if they face judgment and if they face persecution and they face bad behaviors and being mistreated, treated, I can't pretend to be surprised because I feel like that's what I see, especially for my queer folks. That's what I see in those traditions. And, and it hurts me. It hurts my heart because that was such an important part of who I was when I was younger. And to have that taken away in that way really felt like a betrayal. Part two, the ick factor. All right, so even though I was feeling conflicted, it was time to dive in and read the book. I mean, obviously I'm conflicted. This is the episode of all the episodes, the one with the Christian self-help book, where I ask a gay 
adult film performer to do the opening quote. But I just had to get into it. And part of it was getting over what I think of as the ick factor. And there's something about the language that I see around Christianity, Christian television, Christian books, um, whether it's nonfiction or fiction. There's something that just feels very produced about it, a little bit too smiley and beautiful and wonderful. I mean, in a way, it almost sort of comes off like a fetish. There's something about it that's almost sort of erotic in terms of how they talk about their faith and their relationship with the Lord and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there have been some times where I'm scanning the radio stations and I happen across a Christian rock station. And some of those songs, you know, there are songs by male artists that if you changed every instance of Lord, Jesus, Savior, etc. to Daddy, they would be like gay porn love songs. I mean, they're just like, he's inside me, he's filling me up, and I'm like, okay, Daddy. But so that's the kind of ick that I mean. It's like so innocent and sweet, but it also has that like weird double entendre to it that's a little bit too much. And that was something I knew I had to get over. I knew I was going to have to get over that, and I ran into it real quick. You know, a perfect example of what I'm talking about is on page 46. She says, no, the fullness of God is tucked into the sacred places within them. That sounds to me like your no-no zone. The full taking in of God is their sole oxygen. It's not that they don't need people. They do. God created them for community. But the way they love is from a full place, not from an empty desperation. As we talked about in the last chapter, they are living loved. And so it's not like explicitly sexual, but there's just something about that language, that fullness. It's their soul's oxygen, the taking in of God, all that sort of stuff. It has almost this weirdly sexual element to it. I mean, is this going to become Fifty Shades of Prey? And so that's the ick factor that I had to get past. And then in one of the last parts of these first three chapters, there's a section where she talks about pray with me. And she has this long prayer that she sort of walks you through. And again, it's almost like this love letter to God. It's like you are my perfect match for my every need. I am weak. You are strength. I am unable. You are capability. I am hesitant. You are assurance. I am desperate. You are fulfillment. I am confused. You are confidence. I am tired. You are rejuvenation. And I can see how that sort of language, that sort of construction of a God who completes you, Jerry Maguire, can be very comforting. But it also, again, if it were in a different context, it feels like a blueprint for a bad relationship relationship. It feels like the kind of thing you say when you're begging that loser guy to stay when he's trying to leave you for the 10th time. You complete me. You're my everything. I need you. I can't do this without you. And so I really had to set my cynicism aside because that's where I go to whenever I'm reading things like this, whenever I'm getting this sort of messaging, I just have a hard time getting past it. Part three. Being right versus ending right. All right, it was definitely difficult to do, but I managed to put my skepticism on hold. And as I get a little bit further in, I realize that like so many other self-help books, this is going to tell me some shit that I don't want to hear. And the big thing is that you just have to let things go. You have to practice forgiveness. That forgiveness is not about the people that you forgive. It's about what it does for you, what it does for your own mental health and stability and sanity and just living a decent life. And that's not what I want to hear. I struggle with forgiveness. You know, the opening story at the beginning, there's still part of me that's angry at Pastor Ken. 
And I'm sure he doesn't even remember who I am. The only person who's being affected by me holding on to that is me. On page 80, she says, Grace given when it feels least deserved is the only antidote for bitter rot, which is kind of couched in these very Christian terms, but it's very much like the messages that I'm reading in a lot of these self-help books. That forgiveness is not about giving anything to the person that you're forgiving. It's really not. And on page 81, she kind of goes on and she describes how I feel. This idea of I'm the one who was hurt and now I have to be the one to be the bigger person, the thief, friend, father, and teacher should be the ones to pluck the bouquet of lilies from the good smelling box, arrange them with ferns and little white sprigs of baby's breath, put them in a glass vase and deliver them to my front doorstep with chocolates and deep heaving sobs of repentance while sporting the worst haircut of their lives and the 15 pounds of which I'd love to be rid. And sometimes that's how I feel like, yeah, they should be the ones who are apologizing. But seeking what's fair never cracked the world open to reveal the beautiful reality of a Jesus-loving woman. And while I'm not really looking to be a Jesus-loving woman, I am looking to have a little bit more balance and a little bit more peace and serenity in my life. And so her idea of being right versus ending right is really important to me because forgiveness is not just about who wins. It's about moving on and letting yourself let go of things from the past. And that's my cross to bear, pardon the pun. You know, and she mentions the fact that when we forgive, we're also being an example to other people. She says on page 82, we prove that not everyone in this world is vicious and selfish and cruel. And it makes me think of Kesha's song, Praying. Apparently, all of the references that I'm going to come up with for this episode are the least Christian, the least traditionally religious symbols that I can find. But Kesha's praying is very much like that. It's about someone having really done you wrong and you pray for them. Like, that's a powerful message because so many of us can't understand that. We can't understand if somebody does us wrong, somebody does something really terrible to us, that we would pray for them, that we would wish for them to be better and to live in peace. Um, If anybody has seen a production of The Amish Project, you know, the man who went and shot, I think it was 10 school children at an Amish school, 10 little girls, and killed them. And the Amish came together and brought food to his widow's house and comforted her and just what that meant for people and how strange and bizarre that really felt to people to see that, to see this woman who was married to the man who committed this awful crime and in the midst of their own grief at having lost their children, they also showed grace and showed forgiveness to this woman whose husband was the perpetrator and recognizing that while she's dealing with having to come to terms with what her husband did, she's also coming to terms with his loss. And that he wasn't perfect and he did a terrible, terrible thing, but she loved him. And that's a loss of someone that she loved. That sort of forgiveness for many of us is absolutely unfathomable. And so many of us, and I put myself at the front of this line, are more concerned with being right than with ending right. If things are going to end, we worry about being right. We want to get vindication and validation in our argument that we were right. And we don't think about ending right, putting that relationship behind us in a way that honors what the relationship was and the best of both of us. And so even though it's in a different sort of framework that I don't typically respond to, there's something very powerful and I'm finding myself getting caught up in it. I'm finding myself, to use a really horrible religious metaphor, drinking the Kool-Aid of what Lisa Turkhurst is 
trying to present to me. And I don't know if it's going to last, but it's something that is at least making me think and it's making me spend a little bit more time and care and attention on this book, not treating it as a sort of throwaway item the way that I thought that I probably would. Part 4. The Power of Positive Delusion Alright, well it was nice while it lasted, but my honeymoon with Lisa Turquhurst is clearly over. Not too long after the section that I was reading from in the last part, she starts telling this Bible story about a man named Nabal and his wife Abigail, and King David was rejected by him, and so he was ready to commit murder and sent his guards. And she says, extreme reactors are usually dealing with compounding factors, which is her sort of fancy way of saying that hurt people hurt people. And so she starts to excuse what David is doing in this case. Although, as somebody who's not a biblical scholar, this story that she's reading where basically Nabal refused to give David a meal, and now he's sending his guards to kill like all the men of Nabal's household, seems a little bit extreme. And I understand the idea of hurt people hurt people, but come on. Take it down a notch, Mary. That's some fragile masculinity. And so she goes on to say, those hurts have to be soothed by replacing the lies with truth. And she also says, Abigail spoke to who he was, not how he was acting at the moment, which is a way of sort of explaining away bad behavior. Again, there's going to be a theme that comes up quite often about explaining away bad behavior when people do us wrong, that we sort of give them the benefit of the doubt by saying, oh, they obviously had something bad happen to them. They're reacting to hurts and rejections from their past. It's not about us. It's about what's happened to them in the past, which is a wonderful idea, and it's a wonderful way to excuse abusers and people who are assholes from doing the shit that they shouldn't have done in the first place. I mean, I get that people have previous hurts and traumas and things like that. We all do. Everybody experiences that. So the fact that that may be causing you to act like an asshole doesn't change the fact that you're acting like an asshole. And that's that sort of delusion that really gets to me about the products and the media of Christianity, of so much much of what I've seen is just this sort of delusion of everything is going to be fine. There's always a reason. Even if people are terrible to you, God is looking out for you. And then she tells this story about the time where she went to an event and she realized that for whatever reason, she ended up at a table by herself and she was feeling really self-conscious and awkward and nobody was really interacting with her, which I guess that means the other people at this event were assholes because they just left her sitting there. Nobody said anything. Nobody thought to invite her to their table. She didn't go talk to anyone. She just sat there being fucking awkward. And then she says, that's when a very clear sentence popped into my head. You aren't set aside, Lisa. You are set apart. And this is the sort of thing that I think gets into kind of dangerous territory. A little bit later on, she says, anything that infuses us with humility is good. Even if it feels a bit like humiliation in the moment, the workings of humility within are a gift. The only difference between humility and humiliation is that one chose to bow low while the other tripped and fell 
there. But what she's talking about, being left at this table and people sort of ignoring her, that wasn't something that she chose to do. That wasn't internal humility. That was people sort of leaving her out and alone. And it really made me think of Hannah Gadsby's really beautiful comedy special on Netflix called Nanette. And she talks about this idea of what it means to embrace self-deprecating humor. That was something that was sort of a signature of hers. And she really sort of comes out against it. And I I've built a career out of self-deprecating humor. That's what I've built my career on. I don't want to do that anymore. Because do you understand? <laughs> do you understand what self-deprecation means when it comes from somebody who already exists in the margins? It's not humility. It's humiliation. I put myself down in order to speak, in order to seek permission to speak. And I simply will not do that anymore, not to myself or anybody who identifies with me. My story has value. I will not allow my story to be destroyed. What I would have done to have heard a story like mine, not for blame, not for reputation, not for money, not for power, but to feel less alone, to feel connected. I want my story heard. And that clip is just part of a much longer so powerful piece in that special. And comparing Lisa Turkhurst to Hannah Gadsby is like comparing a gas station burrito to a steak perfectly prepared. I mean, it's just meaty and there's ideas and there's feeling and there's so much juice to it. And Lisa Turkhurst, I think what makes that so unpalatable in comparison is just that there, what is she talking about? It's just white girl privilege. I mean, she felt sad because she went to an event and awkwardly sat by herself for what, a couple of hours? I mean, people like Hannah Gadsby and people like me, queer folks and trans folks and other just non-conforming, non-mainstream people who live at the margins die because of things like this. And she's trying to make it some special message from God that she had to eat her salad by herself. I mean, fuck you, Lisa Turkhurst. And refusing to recognize that while she's sitting there by herself feeling bad because people don't come up to her table to talk to her and acting like she's special because she's being set apart and all of this, she's refusing to recognize that people like her make it harder for people like me actively on a regular basis. Is that what she's being set aside to do? Is that why God is teaching her about humility so that she can go out into the world and be judgmental and be terrible to people like me? I mean, this is why I get so frustrated with this kind of perspective, this limited, idiotic sort of perspective. And I know that I'm being dismissive of her, but I'm tired of listening to people like that try to justify themselves. I have spent so many years having to justify myself and justify my existence, and I don't need to listen to people like that anymore. I've done my time, I've paid my dues, enough, enough, enough. It's a delusion and it's unhealthy and I want no part of it. 
And that's where she gets to what I think of as the big lie. On page 108, she says, I know it can be painful to be alone. And I know the thoughts of being set aside are loud and overwhelmingly tempting to believe in the hollows of feeling unnoticed and uninvited. But as you pray through your feelings, see if maybe your situation has more to do with you being prepared than you being overlooked. And a couple pages later, she says... My heart struggles to make peace between God's ability to change hard things and his apparent decision not to change them for me. And I'm sorry, Lisa Turkhurst. I know that you have probably struggled with some things. I know that you have probably had some deep wounds in your life. But some of the things that you struggle with are not the same things that I struggle with and that people like me struggle with. And so when you can just dismiss a situation as you being prepared because you had to sit alone for a couple of hours, I just can't stomach that. I can't get on board with any sort of philosophy where some people are looked at for their choices, but they're still afforded their basic humanity. And some people are considered sinful or broken or wrong because of who they are. That's not something that any God is preparing you to sit through. That is nothing less than just human evil. And it's so ugly and it's wrong. And it's such a deluded place to put yourself in. And I'm not going to put myself there. Not again. Part five, all good girls go to heaven. All right, y'all, this book has been putting me through it. So after that last section, I found myself getting a little bit heated up. I was getting a little bit hyped. So I decided to take a break. And as I'm coming back to this, I thought it might be interesting to focus for a second on the language of the book and the way that it's clearly tailored towards women. I mean, I think in some ways, especially in Western culture, the self-help genre is thought to be the realm of women largely. Certainly there are men who use self-help products, but the largest audience the most money is spent on self-help, at least in this part of the world, by women. And Lisa Turkhurst certainly is targeting her books in that way. You know, there's a quote in here where she says, But no matter, because that's about the time Jesus will remind us that thighs aren't something we'll ever think about in eternity. And all God's girls say, Hallelujah! And she has lots of little asides about thinking about the extra 10 pounds she gained or doubting her husband, having a cute outfit, or a lot of these just sort of weird cultural associations of what women are thinking about or should be thinking about and trying to sort of juxtapose them up against what godly women would want. But at the same time, you can tell she's also into fashion and relationships and all these other kinds of things. So she's in this weird kind of in-between between space. And the more I thought about it, my sort of gender studies background started to kick in. And I thought, of course, of course, she's addressing this book to women, because how many Christian traditions are there that say that women have no place teaching or preaching, sometimes anywhere and certainly not to a man. There are many Christian traditions where if women are going to speak in church or in a religious context, it should be to sort of round up the women folk and make them more holy so that they can be good wives and partners and mothers and all that 
that sort of shit that they're supposed to do. So in some sense, she's addressing this book to some kind of imagined sisterhood, not just because she wants to help women, but because that's the audience that's available to her. And there's no acknowledgement of that. There's no acknowledgement of the fact that she is part of a tradition and a structure that mostly wants to keep her silent. And if she's going to speak, regulates the way she speaks and who she speaks to and limits those opportunities. And it's this really interesting, complex place that she inhabits where she's caught between privilege and powerlessness. And that, again, just becomes another way in which I find her message just so impossible to digest. Because rather than taking that uncomfortable place between privilege and powerlessness and using it as a tool or a lens to examine intersectionality and the different identities and spaces that she inhabits, she instead uses it to turn around to other people who are also in that same position and try to get them in line behind this system that is oppressing them, while also telling some people who have less privilege and less access than she does that they should give up pieces of themselves for this promised salvation. And she sets up this false equivalency that is just so gross. And I've heard this so many times from so many different places, from so many people who are part of these Christian traditions, where they'll talk to you about the pieces of yourself that they find untenable, which for me is usually my sexuality. It could have to do with your gender identity. It could have to do with your politics, anything that they find distasteful or doesn't support their structure. And they'll tell you that it's wrong and that you need to get rid of it. But then they'll try to sort of set up this false equivalency of, but that's the nature of trying to be more godlike is we have to give things up. Well, the person who's telling you that usually has to give up standing around the water cooler and gossiping on a Monday morning or having jealous thoughts or being what she considers boastful when she has an achievement that she wants to talk about. If she doesn't immediately sort of couch it in these sort of fake terms of humility. And so she tries to create this sort of fake equivalency of, oh, I'm sinful too. Yeah, you like to gossip and you like to talk about your achievements. I like to suck dick, Karen. And so the thing that you think makes me wrong is part of my very identity. It's part of my biology. It's part of my psychology. Whereas the things that make you sinful are frivolous choices. And you're trying to equate that to try to show me, well, everyone has to sacrifice. And that's the part of it that just eventually makes the whole system fall apart for me. If that's what you have to do in order to gain access to heaven or salvation or eternal life or whatever, then I can't imagine what sort of crackpot, irrational, hateful God would create that system in the first place. That you have to give up pieces of your identity. The identity that you were created with, by the way, in order to pass some test? No. No, ma'am. So if all those good girls that are just giving up their Monday morning gossip are going to heaven, I don't want to be there anyway. I'm not interested. And if I hope for anything for them, I hope that they eventually gain some perspective and try to do a little bit of introspection and look at the intersectionality of the identities that they hold and the way that they have privilege in certain circumstances and the way that they lord that privilege over other people who have less access and less privilege. People who are vulnerable and who listen to these messages and really do significant damage to themselves because they're trying to fit in or they're trying to earn some sort of golden ticket that this person is promising you. It really is 
sickening. Part six, never saw that coming. All right, so just when I thought I had this book figured out, it absolutely threw me for a loop. Uh, we get into a chapter called Her Success Does Not Threaten Mine, and she has a section where she talks about scarcity versus abundance. So on page 121, she says, the scarcity mentality is the zero-sum paradigm of life. People with a scarcity mentality have a very difficult time sharing recognition and credit, power, or profit, even with those who help in the production. They also have a very hard time being genuinely happy for the success of other people. The abundance mentality, on the other hand, flows out of a deep inner sense of personal worth and security. It is the paradigm that there is plenty out there and enough to spare for everybody. It results in sharing of prestige, of recognition, of profits, of decision making. It opens possibilities, options, alternatives, and creativity. Here she's quoting from Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. But right after that, she says, in other words, people who live with an abundance mentality, who operate out of a deep knowing of their immeasurable worth, live loved. And this is something that I think is very typical of what some people refer to as the prosperity gospel. People like Joel Osteen, who have built these mega churches on the idea that somehow if you're faithful enough, if your faith is true enough, God wants you to be rich and have a Lexus and all this kind of shit. But as we go through, it started to sound more and more like something else. On page 123, after a discussion of one of the Psalms that's talking about the fruitfulness of the world, she says, if I look at my dreams, desires, and hopes for the future as coming from a place of scarcity and the world's limited supply, it will constantly feed the notion that someone else's success is a threat to mine. In other words, this person getting opportunities means less opportunity for me. A little bit later on in the chapter, when she's giving some suggestions for things to remember when you feel rejected, she says, replace the negative talk that will hinder you. Replace it with praise for God who will deliver you. Is any of this starting to sound familiar to any of you? A lot of what I was feeling during this section reminds me of how I was feeling when I was reading Jen Sincero's You Are a Badass. And if you don't remember episode three, one of my biggest problems with Jen Sincero's book is that it borrows heavily from that new age philosophy darling that has completely infiltrated mainstream self-help and now it seems Christian self-help, The Secret. So I've already talked about the fact that my main issue with The Secret is that it ends up blaming people for their own misfortunes. If you're always broke, it's because you are manifesting scarcity. You're not manifesting success and abundance into your life. It's your fault. And this actually pairs really nicely with the prosperity gospel because it allows you to pursue the material things of the prosperity gospel without feeling like you're giving in to the sin of pride. Because if you're just manifesting it, if you're just putting good things out into the world and then getting good things back, if you're focusing on positive things and that's what's bringing success into your life, then it's not that you are sort of hoarding wealth or you're not living the way that Jesus taught in the Bible. It's that you are just bringing God's will into your life and you're being open to it. So it allows them to feel morally superior without actually sounding prideful or boastful. All of the profit, now with 97% less guilt. And so to take away the sort of new age wording of it, instead of listening to your intuition or manifesting or focusing on your intent, on page 132, she talks about the fact that she prayed on it, which just sounds like a different kind of woo-woo to me. 
And although I'm sure this will piss some people off, Christianity really is just a different kind of woo-woo. Any religion or spiritual tradition, no matter how formal or informal, is a type of woo-woo. And when I talk about woo-woo, I'm talking about faith. Faith is what we have when we don't have evidence, we don't have anything where we can prove it. It's beyond what can be seen or known, and it can be a beautiful thing, but it's not really that much different. Just because there are these institutions that are a few hundred years old versus some sort of spiritual belief that somebody made up yesterday, it's still just believing in something that you can't see. And in cases like this, with things like The Secret... It's that sort of philosophy that allows you to blame yourself if you're not successful, if you don't achieve these things, if you have this moment of weakness, because if you're not successful, it's because you didn't pray hard enough. You didn't love hard enough. You didn't do whatever to manifest this thing. And there's no way to ever escape that loop, because if you don't ever become successful in your lifetime, it's just that you never got to that point of believing enough or praying enough or manifesting enough. So it's something that can never be proved false. It's just a way to put people off and take their money for your shitty products. And it allows smug people to keep their feeling of smugness and to not work on their own personality issues or their own issues around wealth and success and power. So where this really kind of went around the bend for me was a story that she tells under a section called 10 Things You Must Remember When Rejected. Here's the story. Good things are coming, I know it. Today's disappointment is making room for tomorrow's appointment. A little cheesy. Let's look for those good things with great intentionality. I was reminded to do this by a friend I recently invited to go on a trip. She was thrilled and very much wanted to go, but as she prayed about it, she felt the Lord was telling her not to accept the invitation. She was confused because she couldn't see one reason why this wasn't a good idea. But to be obedient to God, she texted me she would not be able to make the trip work. I read her text and felt so bummed. I wondered if her decline was for financial reasons or something else I could help her overcome. I picked up the phone and called her. She explained there wasn't any specific reasons. She simply knew deep in her heart that God was saying this wasn't the way she was supposed to fill her schedule during that time period. Instead, she was to circle those days on her calendar and then watch with trust and expectation for God to reveal other plans. Now that to me sounds like a bitch who doesn't want to go on a trip with you. And it also seems really aggressive to call her and badger her about why. And that's the easy, simple thing about this sort of manifesting perspective is that you never need a reason. You never need to have a real conversation about expectations or boundaries. You just say, God doesn't want me to. I know it. Deep in my heart, God doesn't want me to. That's a conversation that that bitch didn't want to have with you, Lisa. And instead of taking that as a moment to think about her own perspective or her boundaries, she says, I was so inspired by my friend's response. I want to live in expectation of God's invitation. Well, hopefully when God sends you that invitation, he'll be a little less creepy in how he handles your response. And even if I poke fun at this book, I promise I didn't set out to make an hour-long episode of Miss J Shits All Over Christianity. Although, let's be real, I'd listen to that podcast. 
And I think that she probably does have some really good intentions in presenting this book, wanting to reach out and help people who are feeling left out or rejected or brokenhearted. And there was a line that I thought was particularly beautiful. She was talking about the idea of heartbreak and struggles she's had in her marriage and the difficulties of being a mother and a wife and just a human being on this planet. And she says, don't let what breaks your heart destroy your life. And that's a beautiful thought. But the perspective that she's coming from, this tradition that she represents, is the thing that has time and time again broken my heart. It's something that I trusted in. It's something that I believed in. And it's something that has betrayed me over and over again. And that's why I've walked away from that Christian tradition. Because I'm not going to let what breaks my heart destroy my life. Part 7. Everything was beautiful and nothing hurt. Spirituality is, by nature, mysterious and it's personal. And maybe it's just the bitter queer in me that's been beaten down by too many bad experiences with organized religion, but I can't help feeling like organized religion is a lie. A beautiful lie. A comforting lie. A lie that helps some people get through the day. But a beautiful lie is still a lie. And maybe lie isn't the perfect word for what I mean. With faith or spirituality or religion or whatever you want to call it, it's like we're all standing on the surface of an enormous beach ball. The beach ball is so enormous and unknowable to us. All we can know are the things that we see and the things that we feel. So if I'm standing on the red section, I'm going to describe God or the universe or the creator as red. If you're standing on the blue section, you're going to describe it as blue. If you're standing on the yellow section, you're going to describe it as yellow. If you're standing on the seam between green and orange, you're going to talk about a little ridged bump and how it's green on one side and orange on the other. We're all looking at a teeny tiny piece of this large thing that none of us can fully completely know. And religion is where people take what they're seeing. They take the red or the blue or the green and orange and they make it into a set of rules and a set of laws. And what's ugly about religion is when people use that to decide that these people are worthy and these people are not. We're all looking at the same thing. Your part isn't better than mine. It's just different. And I should have anticipated this. I should have known that this was coming, but Lisa Turkhurst, towards the end of the book, turns it back to this idea of obedience and following the rules that are specific to her perspective. On page 149, after telling a story about being on a safari in Africa and a lion comes near their tent, she says there's a roaring lion waiting just around every next thought you think. And make no mistake, there's no taming him. He's a defeated foe who has already suffered a fatal blow. But before he falls, he'll try to make a few last kills. With everything he's got left, he's coming after your mind. And how is this enemy, this roaring lion, going to come after you? Well, she's more than happy to give you a laundry list of things that will lead you directly into his clutches. 
pornography, sex outside of marriage, trading your character to claw your way to a position of power, fueling your sense of worth with your child's successes, and spending outside of your means to constantly dress your life in the next new thing. All things we do to counteract feelings of being left out and not invited to the good things God has given others. These are just some of the ways lust sneaks in and wreaks havoc. And then she tries to remind you that when she's talking about God, she says, he is jealous for you. He is jealous for me. The fullness of his love and lavish acceptance is the only match for the rejection we will experience. And he absolutely doesn't want us making other relationships the false God of our worship. And here's the big lie is that her perspective, that piece of the beach ball that she's sitting on, by making that the sort of code that she lives by, she can justify her own foibles and mistakes as things that she's working through, things to get over. But other things are sort of outside of that. Other things are sort of inherently bad. So she doesn't have to worry about being bad or being against God because all of the things in her perspective that are completely outside are things that don't apply to her anyway. It's a convenient sort of spirituality. It's something that allows her to pretend to be vulnerable because all of her mistakes, all of her sins are correctable. They're things she can work on. They're really not that bad. Those pornographers and those people fucking outside of a relationship those are the bad people. Those are the people who have given in to the enemy. And like the refrain from Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, everything was beautiful and nothing hurt, it's a lie. It's a self-serving, convenient lie. And if it's something that somebody wants to live their own life by, that's fine. And if somebody else reads these words and they're like, that fits my perspective too. Maybe I'll work with this. That's great. But the problem with religions like Christianity, which is, at its nature, a religion that attempts to spread and proselytize to other people, it's forcing that perspective on others. Somebody isn't a bad person just because they're standing on a different section of the beach ball than you are. But so much of the comfort that she's offering here is then just turned into a message about compliance. On page 163, she says, if we've been exposed to a teaching that we know we need to implement and we don't make any changes, that's a clue that the hardening of that part of our heart is in process. So if somebody from this other perspective tells you that you're sinful and you're bad and you don't make any changes, then your heart is being hardened by the enemy. And in reality, the only thing about me that's been hardened is my resolve to stay away from people who believe that that's an acceptable way to treat each other. That somehow compliance to this mythical worldview is necessary in order to be fulfilled and feel complete. None of us can know the entirety of the beach ball. That's the nature of faith. It's believing in the unseen, in the unknowable. And your belief is not any more important than mine. What I think is different about my belief than a lot of other people is that I can at least try to comprehend the idea of this whole larger thing. That I can see that all these other people, Christians and Jews and Muslims and Hindus, they're just seeing a different part of the beach ball than I am. We're all looking at the same thing and we're all describing it with the tools and the words that we have for the little piece that we're exposed to. But we're all looking at the same thing. We're all looking at the same larger thing. 
On page 166, Turquoise says, And my search for love and acceptance outside of God's presence then leads to dangerous places. The world's plan always leads us to places of pain, loneliness, and a deep ache for belonging that seems just out of reach. But maybe for a lot of people, those places of pain and loneliness and that ache for belonging are made worse by people like her, who insist that they're only worthy of it if they play by her rules. And that's just not a lie I'm willing to perpetuate anymore. In another section, she says, we must feel the pain to heal the pain. And that's part of what this whole podcast series is about. It's about feeling some of the pain that I've been bottling up and trying to work through it. And that includes my weird, fucked up, complicated relationship to religion and Christianity. And I think she's right. I think we have to feel the pain in order to heal the pain. I think when we box things up and keep it inside, it doesn't go anywhere. It's still just in that box and it's still sort of festering away. But that doesn't mean that I have to give up my perspective. I don't have to give up the things that make me uniquely who I am. And anybody that tries to tell me that I have to or tries to tell you that you have to is not giving you anything of any real value. Lisa Turkworst may feel like she's inviting me to the party, but if those are the rules and the expectations, then I'm sorry, I'm going to have to RSVP with a resounding no. Part 8. The Porn Star Next Door I love a good juxtaposition of two things that shouldn't probably go together. And what could be better than putting together a little bit of the sacred with a little bit of the sacrilegious? So for this episode, I invited my friend Chris Harder to submit the opening Brene Brown quote. He was actually the first person I asked, and he submitted this a long time ago. When I first started this project, I thought it was going to be a lot quicker, a lot more shallow. And so this was just a fun way to put a little bit of Christian perspective next to some adult content. And Chris Harder himself is a little bit of this kind of juxtaposition. I met Chris Harder over a decade ago when he was a freshman in college at the University of North Dakota, and I was a frustrated graduate student hiding from my thesis. I was taking classes in the theater arts department as a way to distract myself from the writing I should have been doing, and Chris was signed up for the intro to design class. He told me that the first day that he saw me in class, he thought, I need to get to know him. He'll know where the gays are. And it's true. I did. Chris was a fantastic young actor, and he quickly became a darling of the UND theater program, and even got a little bit of a reputation as the naked guy, appearing in the buff in productions of both Metamorphoses and Equus. He also produced his own show during his college years called Steel and Snow, and ever since graduation, he has continued to explore the interactions between queerness and theater and performance in a variety of ways. He has traveled internationally performing boylesque. He's performed in a variety of adult films. And he's written and directed two additional shows that have played to theaters around the country. I admire the way that he keeps his queerness front and center with his performances. And I can't wait to see all of the ways that he'll continue to contribute to queer history and culture. Even if he did get rid of the teal sweater vest.
Miss J, The Renovation is a 17-episode limited series podcast presented by Champagne Dreams Productions. While we're all here to have fun, mental health is a serious issue. Nothing in this podcast series should be taken as medical advice, and listening to podcasts or reading self-help books is not a substitute for proper mental health care. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, please contact the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionhotline.org for more information. I love all of my champagne dreamers out there. Stay safe and stay alive. The brief audio clip of Hannah Gadsby's comedy special Nanette was used under the fair use provision of the Copyright Act, being used for purposes of commentary, satire, or parody. Please don't sue me. I don't have any money anyway. This episode also features royalty-free music by bensound.com. In the order that they were played, this episode features the tracks Clear Day, Enigmatic, November, Sad Day, Creepy, and Summer. For these and more great royalty-free tracks, visit bensound, that's B-E-N, sound.com. Miss J, The Renovation is written and directed by Chris M. Stoner and is a Champagne Dreams production.